Okay. <clears throat> so, um, as we go through the steps of what I call liberative dependent origination, the conditions, supportive conditions for liberation, it uh, falls on me to introduce you to a wonderful Pali word. Maybe you'll learn one new Pali word this retreat. Pamoja. 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 Pamoja, in my mind, is a happy sound. And it it means, uh, usually translated into English as gladness, though I like the word delight, some people like the word joy. And it belongs to a class of emotions that are have to do with well-being and uh, closely connected to those, you know, gladness or joy or delight is contentment, to be content, uh, or a lightness of being, to be lighter. Uh, to be buoyant. And uh, three of the 12 steps, a quarter of the whole, all the steps that we're going to be talking to, talking about, belong to a family of good, good news. It begins with this delight, pamoja, and then there'll be rapture, and then uh, in a few days we'll have happiness. Isn't that nice? <laughs> this is what you can look forward to as we go along here. And uh, this uh, factor of pamoja is the anti-grimness factor to help us not be too grim about our practice and, um, and not, not too serious about it in a grim way. There's a teaching that this practice, the Dharma is, is so important. It's, it's too important to take seriously. <laughs> because when you take it seriously, I think that's cliche. The idea is that then you constrict, you tighten up, you get heavy. And there's so, much more important things to be done in life than get heavy and grim and serious. And this is so deadly important and dutiful. Do your duty. Have your vitamins and meditate. (laughs) So, Pamoja. Maybe, like they say, in in Alaska they have many different words for snow. The Buddhists have not different word, a lot of words for, you know, in this happiness family of words. They have some, but uh, for this uh, joy or delight or gladness factor, they have a lot of reasons for people to have pamoja. A lot of causes for it. <clears throat> there be lists, you know, of all the things you can be happy for and delighted for. <clears throat> and. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the ways that the Buddhist community was known in the time of the Buddha, it was known for its happiness and that the monks and nuns smiled. And it was kind of, apparently that was kind of an unusual thing. You know, the, the, so people would remark, oh, those are so, they're so happy. Sometimes they talk about the monks and nuns, the community being radiant. And the Buddha sometimes has a title of being the happy one. So they're being happy and smiling. Here's a couple of some verses from the ancient tradition, from the Dhammapada. One who drinks in the Dharma. There's a, a word pun here because the word piti, which means uh, to um, joy or rapture, also means to drink. So there's a word play here through these two words, joy and drink. One who drinks in the Dharma sleeps happily with a clear mind. 
the sage always delights in the Dharma. So one of the things to be delight in, <clears throat> take uh, even refuge in, or, is our virtue, our good qualities, our ethical activities. And you're encouraged to, if you're going to review your life and you want to have a little bit of joy, don't go to the worst things you've done. You know, but like for you all, being on this retreat, please take the light that in the course of these this retreat, I don't think any of you have killed another person. <laughs> now, you might not silly, you know, and to emphasize that, and like, boy, you know, there's more important things, and that's like, that doesn't count. Not killing people doesn't count. It's so easy. I didn't even have to not want, I didn't have to want it even. I just didn't do it. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of killing going on in this world of ours. A lot of it, boy. The um, yeah, I can. I, mean, you, you, I could tell you stories, right? You know the stories stories and stories of what people do to each other. It's a pretty phenomenal thing to have 90 people together and not killing each other, not fighting. When I was in the monastery in Burma, uh, two monks had a fist fight over the fan. <laughs> one wanted it on, one wanted it off. So we have so few fans here, so we've kept you out of trouble. But so, you know, you haven't, I don't think you've had any fist fights. These things count. But one of the things uh, is the idea of living a life that's dedicated to being harmless. Uh, one of the, the, the Dharma, the uh, ancient text says that what the Dharma is, is characterized by harmlessness. Great idea. So here's a one. Always wide awake are the disciples of the Buddha, whose minds constantly, day and night, delight in harmlessness. Isn't that nice? So it's one thing to not want to cause harm, but day and night to delight in harmlessness, to, to, to delight in the goodness of your heart, the light and this motivation not to cause harm. Isn't that nice? And I think you've been living a pretty harmless life this so far. I hope you delight in it. So this, this uh, series of verses all begin with one of the great mantras. Ah, if you ever need it, it's there, ready for you. Ah. So it begins. Ah. So happily we live without hate among those with hate. Among people who hate, we live without hate. Ah. So happily we live without misery among those in misery. Among people in misery, we live without misery. Ah. It's in the poem. <laughs> so happily we live without ambition among those with ambition. Among people who are ambitious, we live without ambition. Ah. So happily we live we who have no attachments, we shall feast on joy. Isn't that nice? Feasting on joy? And one more, a couple more from this 
chapter in the Dhammapada. There's a whole chapter called Happiness. Victory gives birth to hate. The defeated sleep in anguish. Giving up both victory and defeat, those who have attained peace sleep happily. Giving up both victory and defeat. There is no fire like lust, no misfortune like hate, no suffering like the aggregates, and no happiness higher than peace. The highest happiness is peace. So it's great to encounter joy in the Dharma practice. And to appreciate it when it arises, to allow it to arise. I've had the great privilege of, in my role and great authority as a teacher, what was that? (laughs) Let's try it again. (laughs) I've had the privilege in this role and great authority as a teacher. In meetings we have, practice discussion once, remember once many years ago, a woman grew up in a religious and a cultural tradition that uh, where it felt that something like, you know, that to feel joy in the body, to feel joy and delight was somehow connected to being sinful. So I sat up straight, put on my authority hat and told her it was completely good and appropriate and fine to feel joy. Isn't that a great role to have in someone's life? So, I apparently don't have much authority here, but I want to tell you, <laughs> with as much authority as you'll give me, that um, it's okay to have joy. It's okay to have delight. So, um, I remember when I was, I had been introduced to Vipassana in Thailand, and um, was taken to it and wanted to go practice more, and I learned that somehow the source was Burma, so I decided to go to Burma. And, um, but back then, in the mid-80s, it was hard to get into Burma. Uh, so it took me about after nine months to get a visa to get into Burma. It was basically kind of a closed country for any length to stays. So I finally got a meditation visa, and uh, after a few false starts, and they went to the embassy in Bangkok, Burmese embassy, and they stamped um, you know, meditation visa in the book, passport. And as I was leaving, um, walking down the street in front of the embassy, I started running and skipping, singing, uh, you can get it if you really want. You can get it if you really want, but you gotta try, try again. I was so happy. And then I uh, came to Burma and I was practicing there. And after a while, so I kind of started, so I, I don't know where, it, I didn't choose to do this exactly, it was kind of spontaneous as far as I remember. But when I, every time I would sit, uh, go to sit down to meditate, I would sing, I think it was uh, little lines from, I think it was a Led Zeppelin song. And I can't sing, so I'm not going to try, but, uh, but it was something like, um, um, I got a whole lot of love way down inside. <laughs> got a whole lot of love. <laughs> so I'd take this deep breath and I'd say these words to myself and, and just go, you know, then that's how it starts. Wasn't that nice? Don't take it too seriously. It's too important for that. So, um, 
And uh, I would say, you know, probably among the happiest times of my life were that retreat in Burma. To be engaged in practice, to engage in this wonderful thing of practice. I had so much faith in the practice. And I, I, and also I just appreciated so much the opportunity to meet the truth, to be able to meet what was real in a sense. I was very well aware of how much of the time I was not living in a real world. You know, probably some of you by now have realized that there's a few moments a day where you're not in the real world, but rather you're in your thoughts and the past and the future. You're not in your lived experience. Because the only place that lived experience can be, the only place you can be alive is in the present. And there's something very powerful and meaningful about residing in your lived experience as opposed to drifting off in thought and past and future and fantasy. And so I came to more and more appreciate this, this real world, the lived experience. And so much so that even when I was suffering, and this was a big surprise to me, that when I was suffering, even though I was suffering and I kind of didn't like to suffer somehow, there was something meaningful, something kind of joyful or kind of satisfying. Maybe satisfying is the more, more the right word, or a relief, certainly, um, to be real with it, to feel like now I'm in contact with what's real. This is real. I'm not... And I remember sometimes feeling tremendous pain, suffering. Um, and, um, but there was something about knowing that I was in touch with it, that I was alive with it, connected to it, that it was true. This was true that was very meaningful for me, brought me a certain kind of joy, the joy of the practice, the joy of the connection. And I suppose it helped that I had, I had a lot of faith in the practice. And so this, you know, I, I kind of, yes, showing up and being real, I, I believe in that. I'm so glad I can do it. And uh, not a few people have told me that uh, what a relief it's been to come to um, hear the Buddhist teachings for the first time and the most people usually say this, say, finally someone's talking about suffering. Finally someone's talking about this thing that everyone's been avoiding. What a relief. It's so nice to hear about it. And there's a path. Isn't this great? This idea of turning towards suffering and being very honest about it, rather than being heavy, is joyful. In the 1965 or so, they had started having... LSD in San Francisco and getting high, there were some high school girls in Palo Alto, four of them, who heard that there was a Zen master in San Francisco, Suzuki Roshi, who can teach you how to get high naturally. So they thought that was cool. So they took the bus up to San Francisco to see Suzuki Roshi and at, uh, at, at uh, Sokoji, the old temple in Japantown. He, he met them and and they you know, said, we hear you can make us high. <laughs> Naturally. And so he went and sat down with them and he proceeded to uh, give them a talk about the Four Noble Truths. Suffering. <laughs> the cause of suffering. And um, the one woman I know about who was part of this group of four, uh, she said, yeah, the, you know, the teaching kind of didn't really, wasn't what they were looking for, hoping for. <laughs> But this man, he was so happy as he was talking about suffering. And it was his happiness in talking about Four Noble Truths that uh, made her a Zen student for the rest of her life. Isn't that something? So this meeting with what's real. One of the experiences I had, that retreat in Burma that I was at, was as I was practicing, I started to feel a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. And, um, and what was nice about this kind of happiness and joy was that it wasn't conditioned by the things of the world. It wasn't because the world was, you know, I'd won, it wasn't because I won the lottery or someone praised me or I didn't get anything. 
You know, it wasn't because I got enlightened. Look at me, I got the enlightenment badge. Um, it um, it was just kind of it, it was certainly conditioned on the practice, but it was just kind of from being very settled, very much at home and connected here, so they emerged this kind of joy. But what was most significant about it for me? Why it was very why one of the functions this kind of joy has was as I was doing my walking meditation, I suddenly had an understanding about the magnitude of suffering in this world of ours that kind of, I just stopped in my tracks and kind of blew me away. I, I mean, I knew there was a lot of suffering, but the magnitude of it, I, I just had no, you know, I just, I, could, I saw it in a way I'd never seen it before. We live in a world where a lot of, there's a lot of suffering. And that insight which had such a big impact on me, helped shape me who I am, was received in this field of happiness, of joy. Wasn't that nice? So I wasn't weighed down by it. I wasn't troubled by it. I didn't get pulled into my, you know, my Achilles heels, my sense of responsibility. You know, it's up to me, going to save the world. And, um, and so I just, I, just was, I, was, I received it. There was all this well-being. It impacted, it hit my heart, I was changed by it, but I didn't lose the joy, I didn't lose the happiness. It held it, it was a container for it. Often when we suffer, we, many of us I think, uh, we can kind of focus so much on the suffering, identify with it, and lose touch of a bigger picture. And I think the, uh, the sequence that we've been talking about these evenings, we're starting with suffering, um, and then moving to faith, Many people suffer, but not so many people suffer and have a faith that it's okay to turn towards it. Have faith that there's a practice that will carry you beyond it, that will heal it or liberate you from it. And to have that faith and that sense of possibility is a condition for joy. And this is how this sequence works. Um, if you want to have, if you want to have faith in a path that leads to the end of suffering, you've got to suffer first. That's the condition. I mean, otherwise, why bother? Right? So if you suffer, that's the condition for the birth or the arising of a kind of faith that there's a way, there's a way. That faith then is a condition, can be a condition for certain kind of relief, happiness, well-being, satisfaction, or maybe just simply a yes. Yes. This is good. I'll turn towards this. So John began his talk yesterday with this wonderful story about the student who um, called across the river. And it made me think of um, a different kind of analogy with the river. So again, there's a person standing on the ground next to the river, but it's a very narrow piece of land. And there's a second river on the other side. On one side of the river is a beautiful, big, majestic river that's sailing down, going down, and it just goes forever. And uh, on the other side, going the other direction, is a small stream that's kind of flowing nicely down, peacefully, and it heads out far in the distance there. You can see though, there's a um, very peaceful lake, very still, very peaceful and safe and comfortable and refreshing. So the person standing there on this narrow strip of land of these two rivers, what to do? And on the big river that goes on forever, there comes, going down the river, there comes this great showboat casino and band and it's happy hour and everyone's very happy because everyone's drinking and and they invite you aboard and you thought this is fun there's all these lights and just like this is great fun so you get on and it takes a few years before you even realize you're on and for you forgot there's so much fun so much to do and all this stuff and after a while, you get you know, getting tired of it, all this stuff, and you have a hangover all the time. And 
And you ask, you know, where do I get off the boat? And they said, what, off? <laughs> it just goes on. Uh, though sometimes these showboats, they run into the shoals, the rocks in the river, and, and then everyone has to get into the lifeboats. <clears throat> and then you stay in the lifeboats for a long time. And, you know, poor me, you know, why do I have to be in a lifeboat? It's such a small one. And <laughs> Some people get the big one. And And stay in that boat for a long time. But occasionally, somehow the boats kind of dock and you get off and get back. Oh, land. You're back on land. It's solid ground. And then you start making your way up back to where you started. But when you get back up there, there's another boat coming down. This time, it's the war boats. Their guns are shooting and blazing and they're fighting major wars and this is a serious thing and you've got to save the world. And so you get on the boat, you know, and like important things going on and get your guns and fight and shoot. And it's very exciting, very meaningful. And that goes on. You remember the river goes forever. Or you finally make it on land and you walk back up to the beginning and then there's a boat that has your name on it. That's me. And so you get on that boat, the me boat. And actually, there's a whole, there's a whole, um, uh, uh, you know, what is it called? Flotilla? What's it called? Flotilla. A whole flotilla of boats with your names on it. They're just like one after the other. They're going to keep coming. <laughs> and they keep coming and keep coming. You can get off it, you know, as many times as you want, but there's a coming. And so you get on those boats, the me boat, me, myself, and mine. And you hold on tight. Some of them are really big and you're happy and some of them are really small and you're unhappy. Some are creaky and falling apart and some are four boats, whatever. So that's what goes on in that river. And it's very alluring, you know. The showboats are great and the wars are compelling and, and well, all the boats with your name on it are really, they're really compelling. And if you get on those boats that sets in motion certain conditions. And those conditions lead to hangovers, to suffering, to fighting, to, um, you know, to expectation, to demanding, to disappointment, to all kinds of things. And you, you don't go onto the showboats, you don't go onto the warboats, you don't go onto the boats with your name on it without sooner or later suffering. That's what the, the conditioned arising of suffering implies in Buddhism. But then after doing this for many years, you finally get curious about the little stream on the other side. I mean, it doesn't seem so important. It doesn't, like, not so compelling. and It doesn't seem to have a lot of monetary value. And, you know, it doesn't seem to be like one that's going to give you a lot of status. And, you know, just a little, little stream there. So you, so you try that stream. And uh, it's a little bit tricky because you go to the edge of that stream and the, right where you stand, the stream is like kind of deep and dark. You know, and have you ever been to a deep pond or lake or something? And like maybe there's, a, I don't know if I, there's a Loch Ness monster down there. And you know, it's okay. <laughs> and... Um, so something terrible might be there, so like, I'm not going to go there. But finally, because you've been on the showboats for so long, I've got to try something else. So you go into that dark water. And you're surprised that there's a very nice current. And if you lay on your back and float, it starts carrying you down very peacefully and nicely down this, down this nice stream. And soon enough, it brings you to this very peaceful, to the source, very peaceful kind of lake at the end. It's very safe and delightful and happy. And there are happy people there. So this, the teachings on dependent origination is, talks about two different streams we can enter into. We can enter into the stream that leads to suffering. We can get on the boat of clinging, we can get on the boat of identification, we can get in the boat of ignorance. We can get in the boat of having a bad disposition. There's all kinds of boats we can get on. And if you get on those boats, 
then uh, it, those are the conditions that, le- that flows, leads to suffering. Or we can take a different stream. And that's the stream we're talking about here of the transcendent or liberative dependent origination. And this is a teaching about how things arise based on conditions. That for anything to arise, there has to be conditions for it to to occur. And and so to begin appreciating the conditionality of things has a number of values. One is that then we can start taking responsibility for those conditions, or appreciating them, supporting them. So so, you know, if uh, maybe you can't make yourself happy, but you can put together the, some of the conditions that support happiness. Maybe you can't make yourself liberated by snapping your fingers, but you create the conditions that make you more conducive to lead to happiness. The condi- so it's, it's pointing to where you can make a difference. The other purpose of this teachings on conditionality, dependent origination, is to help you, help us, to uh, not interpret or understand our life through the framework of me, myself, and mine, I. And it's very common for people to interpret their life and their suffering, their situation, by me, myself, and I. What's in it for me, where I came from, where I'm going, what people think of me, uh, what I want, what I need. Um, You know, it's all this I. It's very interesting to listen to yourself, but also to others sometimes, how often the... uh, the, uh, the pronoun I is used. I became so painfully aware how often I, I did it when I was trying to speak Japan, uh, Japanese in Japan. Because uh, I was living in the monastery there and I was learning Japanese and so I, you know, no one else spoke English so I had to kind of get by. But in Japanese you don't, um, it's, they have a pronoun I but you very rarely use it. In fact, if you use it too much it's kind of rude or kind of not really, you know, good form. Um, but I was trying to speak Japanese, but I basically only knew how to speak English, so I would speak in- Japanese as if I was speaking English. So, um, so th- and the word for I is uh, three syllables long. It's long, like watashi. And then you have to, can't just, that's not enough, you have to add a little preposition after that. So, watashi wa. You know, it's so, so nice in English, I. And so it slips in, no one notices. <laughs> and um, so I, but because I was kind of didn't know how to, you know, I, I couldn't get into this speaking by inference. You know, you just kind of, it's, a, it's just understood what the pronoun is in the sentences many times. So I would start almost every sentence with watashi wa. Which literally, so it's kind of. In the, I think in the Japanese ear, kind of the same sound, the same thing as for us in English. If someone started every sentence with, "As for me," <laughs> you know, and um, and so you know, I, I, so what what it did to me was it showed me how often I used the pronoun I, and that was a wake up call for me. That wow, this is really interesting. What's, the, what's this I about all the time? So uh, we, we're conditioned by our society and our experience and maybe our, even our, I don't know, structures of our brain to uh, have a sense of I and to orient around I. But it's so easy to get that solidified or locked in and get attached to it. And there's a tremendous amount of suffering, probably most human suffering, um, has some relationship to our self-identity, the attachment to self. And what the Buddha tried to do was to offer a different framework from which to, to which to understand our life that doesn't depend on the, f- on the idea of I, the framework of I, to always come back to that I, but rather a different framework. And so the path from suffering to freedom, it, I mean, it's, it's you who are supposed to walk the path. It's not like you you don't count, but it's offering it without picking up and getting entangled and complicated by the me, myself, and I point of view. And so it's offering the conditions that are independent of me, myself, and I that lead to liberation or that support liberation. So 
it's sometimes it's better to think of this dependent origination as going backwards. So the very last step is knowing that you're liberated. And there's, advantage, there's benefits from that, not really, really knowing that. But you can't, you can't really know that you're liberated unless you first get liberated. Being liberated is a condition to know you're liberated. And it's rare that liberation is like you snap your fingers or some pop, you know, the Big Bang theory of enlightenment is like it happens. Occasionally some people have something happens very fast and out of the blue. But for most people, it's much more a process. And, uh, and the process involves uh, uh, taking these strong attachments we have, strong clingings that we have, and having them slowly uh, fade away, slowly wear away, slowly thin out. And the condition that supports the final release of liberation is the thinning out of our attachments. So there's not much there to, so it's easier to, for the string to break because the, 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 the rope has gotten, you know, fine, they're, they're worn out. So our clingings wear out. The condition that supports the wearing away of our clinging and our grasping is to no longer be in the spell of our clinging, in the spell of what we cling to, the allure, as someone used the other night. The, um, so the idea is to be disenchanted, to no longer be enchanted, no longer have uh, uh, magical thinking that this thing is going to make me happy once and for all. This is the thing that's going to do, do it for me. And so this fading, this kind of disenchantment, kind of breaking the spell, supports, there's a condition that supports beginning to let go of the grip we have. And as the grip lets go more, that's a condition for finally letting go all the way. So, th- so it goes backwards that way. And for in order to, uh, to, be, you know, to have the spell be broken, we have to really see things as they really are. In order to see things as they really are, what really is an important condition that supports that, the mind has to be still. The mind is agitated. It's kind of, it's kind of cloudy. It doesn't really see clearly what's going on. So it helps, it really supports to have the mind still, which is what the samadhi factor is about. But to really have a still mind, that's a usefully still mind, it helps if you're happy. Happiness is a condition. And many people, including myself, have uh, bypassed that, tried to bypass that approach. You know, I'm going to get, you know, it's so important, I'm serious, and I can get concentrated, and I'm going to get, by Joe, I'm going to get concentrated, and, you know, none of this, you know, sentimental stuff. And, you know, I was a Zen student, so, like, happiness was sentimental. <laughs> You know, and so, you know, and if you tell your Zen master you're, you know, happy, like, let go. (laughs) (laughs) It's all empty, let go, don't. But, you know, it turns out that um, a certain kind of happiness, there's a kind of healthy, beautiful happiness that is not there because you won the lottery or you got praised or all these things, not because of the conditions of the world, but a sense of being settled in yourself, at home in yourself. That is a condition that supports the stilling of the mind, the stillness that supports seeing. And, but you can't, this healthy, nice happiness, for it to be good happiness, it helps to be calm. So calm is a condition for this kind of happiness. But to be calm, a good condition that supports that is joy or, or rapture. A condition that supports joy or rapture is pamoja. And pamoja is a condition that, are, that uh, arises out of faith. It's a kind of joy, a kind of delight that is born out of faith. It can be born out of other things as well. It can be born, there's a joy of blamelessness the joy of harmlessness, the joy of being ethical, the joy of faith, of being connected to the Dharma, the joy of hearing the teachings and having access to them, the joy of being able to practice. It's such a rare and wonderful opportunity. What a delight to feel a satisfaction of that. Sometime, many times I've practiced and, um, and um, 
with uh, just a kind of a deep satisfaction or joy or happiness that I get to practice, irregardless, independent of what happens when I practice, independent of what I get out of practice or how far my practice goes. I'm just so happy that I got to practice. Wow, in this lifetime I get to practice. It seems, you know, it's like so much better than, I mean, I mean so much better to enjoy practicing than it is being concerned about what happens afterwards, the goal, what happens. So to begin looking at our experience through not self, but through, where, can we start recognizing these conditions when they're present? And can we be nourished by them? Can we be nourished by faith? Can we, do we have some faith? I think all of you have some faith. You, you can't come to a month-long retreat unless you have something you have confidence in, something you have faith, and something you trust. Depending what, maybe you don't like the word faith, but you have something going for you. You're not going to come. No way. Some of you lose it here, I know. <laughs> or, you, or you think you'll lose it because, you, you know, it's challenging to be here sometimes. And it gets even more challenging if, if you're trying to measure what's going on here from the perspective of me, myself, and mine. I'm a bad meditator. I can't do this. I've got to get to the... 14th stage of the 13th level <clears throat> by lunch. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so then we get disappointed and then we lose our faith. <clears throat> but to appreciate there's the conditions and we can be nourished by the conditions tenderly or carefully. You don't want to do heavy. You don't want to get attached. You don't want to make a big projects out, out of it. But it's good to be nourished if you have some faith, to appreciate it and to feel some delight. If you, you know, we, all, we often fixate on particular viewpoints of what we think is important, me, myself, and mine. And some people fixate on their troubles, their difficulties. And we're supposed to fo- focus on our troubles and you know, on suffering, but we fixate on it. And there's often much more going on at the same time. And sometimes it's okay to appreciate the blue sky. It's okay to enjoy the company you're in. It's phenomenal. You're in these people who haven't killed anyone for days. <laughs> it's quite nice. These are safe people. These are good people here. Really good people. Even the person who clumps in the residence halls at two of the night. It's a good person. I promise. They're all, they're all good. You're always, it's phenomenal what we have here. To, to look around and appreciate this and be nourished by it, be delighted by it. It's pretty cool. Um, so, I'm going to read you a Joy story. There's a man who lives here in Woodacre named Jacques Ferdin, who has been running a prison project for many years in San Quentin, teaching mindfulness and violence prevention and life skills, and a lot of great things for the inmates in St. Quentin Prison. And um, he has an e-newsletter he sent out a few months ago, and this was a story that one of the inmates wrote. And the story is titled, The Shining Fire Hydrant. My night was like any other night. It was 8 p.m., time for close custody count. All prisons have institutional counts wherein they count each prisoner's body to ensure no one is missing or has escaped. 
Not being there for count is considered a serious violation. The officer came to our cell and called my roommate's name, after which my roommate gave him uh, the last two digits of his prison number. The same went for me. Half an hour passed and a neighbor comes to my cell and said they were paging me downstairs. I had not heard them calling for me. I went down to the podium and the cops said to me, why were you not in your cell for count? And I told them, I was in my cell for count as I have been every day and night for 12 years. And I have numerous neighbors that can verify that. It did not matter what I said. The cops told me to not do it again. And I am like, whatever. Two days go by and I find out that the sergeant gave me a write-up, a violation. I'm thinking, okay, I truly am not guilty of this and I have many witnesses who will say the same. However, at the hearing, the cop that counted said he looked into my cell two times and I was not there. It did not matter what I said or how many people I had who would say the same because I was found guilty and given 40 hours of extra work duty. I said to myself, screw this. I am not going to do the work. This is so unfair. I did nothing wrong and these guys are wrong about this. I, I had watched that count cop count me and he did not look up from his count board once. His eyes never left that board. I filed a complaint against the officer. That is the last thing I wanted to do, but I was not wrong about this. They were. I felt bitter about being ordered to do those 40 hours of extra duty. In a phone call, I spoke to my mother about it, and she wondered if perhaps just take it. And regardless of the circumstances and the injustice of it, see if I can do what would ultimately be best for me. She, she said she would accept what I would decide, but if I could, to act respectfully. I reckoned if I refused to do the work, even though it came about unjustly, I would be guilty in their eyes. I chose to do the work anyway. I have always prided myself with doing exceptional work and I was desperately looking to find my pride in this situation, somewhere, no matter what. So, not only did I do the work, I did the best possible job I could do. I was asked to shine up this brass fire hydrant. Though I still felt resentful about those 40 hours of extra duty, I set off to shine up this hydrant and I really got into the job. As a result, this hydrant started shining very brightly. As the sun caught it, I could see my face in it and I noticed I was smiling from ear to ear. I began to laugh out loud for no reason other than enjoying that moment and seeing the result of my work. By putting all my conscious effort into shining up that fire hydrant, I had become bigger than the unfairness that led me to my assignment. I do not know how long I was at it, but when I, but when I was done, that hydrant, it looked like the prettiest thing in the whole prison. Kinda like a small lighthouse standing proudly in an ocean of concrete, calling out how to steer on how to move through this place. I realized I was shining too, and it hasn't left me. Many people commented on that hydrant all week, wondering how come that thing gives off so much light all of a sudden. I just smiled. Signed, Birdman. So, he gave himself wholeheartedly 
over to the task at hand. It was unjust, but he didn't let the injustice keep him small. He gave himself over to what he was going to do, and he gave it 100% to the fire hydrant. And he got concentrated, he got absorbed in the work, a condition for feeling happy and joyful, for being transformed. And in that process, in his language, he became bigger than the injustice, bigger than the situation. You have your fire hydrant here at the retreat. For some of you, it's your breathing that you're polishing. May you have the shiniest breath. Some of you, it's your walking meditation. Some of you, it's your work meditation in the kitchen or somewhere else. And you might have all kinds of judgments about it, about yourself, all kinds of ways that keep you small, keep you not engaged, keep you kind of half-hearted, keep you kind of... What if you just give yourself completely? Give yourself over to the Dharma. Give yourself over to the practice, wholeheartedly. Not in any kind of way to get tense or strain, not in any way to lose some feeling of delight or relief or satisfaction. But what about giving yourself over completely? And may your fire hydrant shine. So let's gather together again. A practitioner filled with delight and pleased with the Buddha's teachings attains happiness, the stilling of the mind, the state of peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.